Attention, everyone. Hello, and welcome to another KaijuCast commentary. This is Kyle, and I just wanted to give everyone a heads up on what's going on with this particular entry. This year, at GFest 22, I suggested a live commentary recording with notable kaiju guru and the author of Eiji Tsuburaya, Master of Monsters, August Rigoni. GFest accepted this panel idea, and this commentary is the recording of that panel. It's different from what we've done before, it's very laid back, and for syncing purposes, we are using the classic media DVD of this film, and we are just about to hit play on the English-language version. Once you have your DVD ready to go, hit play when you hear the A-Cycle Light Ray in just a few seconds. Before we begin, though, I just want to say thanks to August Rigoni for joining me and to G-Fest for allowing this to happen. Maybe we'll do it again next year. Okay, get ready, because we're disrupting alien transmissions in 3, 2, 1... Uh, so, as you guys probably know, and we have uh, two versions of this film that are available to us, the international, or the, the Japanese version, and the AIP dub here. And well, technically it's not AIP. Sorry, yeah, not AIP dub, Titra, right? No. No? This was dubbed in uh, Los Angeles. Oh. And uh, it was recorded at Glen Glen Studios. Okay. Uh, and Glen Glen, uh, uh, the person who uh, ran the studio under that name, uh, Glenn Glenn, was also a uh, rockabilly singer. Huh. All right. He did some recordings uh, in, the, uh, in the 50s, including One Cup of Coffee and a Cigarette. That sounds like a good, good song. Now, that's really arcane. <laughs> so, uh, I, that's good. I'm glad we're starting the educational information yeah. so right the, up top. So, the film was originally uh, meant for release by American International Pictures, according to Bob Eggleton, who mm-hmm. some information, and it was going to uh, be, uh, uh, you know, distributed in the United States in uh, 1966 or uh, 1967, and uh, Monster World, a magazine that was an offshoot of Famous Monsters of Filmland in the 60s, uh, covered a story, call- uh, had a story called The Return of Ghidra, which talked all about this film when it was still under the title Invasion of the Astro Monsters, not Toho's mis Englishized Invasion Anglicized title and, and okay, with, you know, missing missing the and the S, the plural. Um, and uh, apparently the head of AIP, American International Pictures, and uh, Henry G. Shaperstein, who had brought AIP, Godzilla vs. the Thing, and, um, and also What's Up, Tiger Lily, and a couple of other Toho films, uh, including Frankenstein Conquers the World. He and, Henry, and uh, Sam Arkoff, the head of AIP, had a falling out. And so uh, their deal to distribute Monster Zero and War of the Gargantuas fell through. And Shaperstein wasn't able to sell these films to anyone else for a while. So he took Monster Zero and uh, retitled it. Uh, he took what was called at the time Invasion of the Astro Monsters, as I said, and had it retitled Invasion of the Astros. And that's an actual optical title with the background of the P1 spaceship and that same font style that is in the title that we're watching tonight. And, or this afternoon, well, rather. It feels like tonight to me after the first we two days of GFest. And uh, well, 
those were shown to military circuit theaters, uh, the U.S. military circuit theaters uh, in uh, U.S. territories or wherever there were military bases. And so he got some juice out of that over a few years, you know, leasing it out to the military film circuit or theater circuit, and finally struck a deal with a company, a small distributor named Marin Films, and they were able to uh, co-feature uh, Monster Zero with War of the Gargantuas, and those were uh, widely released to the, uh, hard, what they called hard tops, which would be a walk-in movie theater and drive-ins all across the United States uh, in 1970. And it was considered before that release that the J monster cycle was winding down and the Japanese monster cycle was passe. Those two films were released in uh, the spring and summer of 1970. Became a massive hit. Became such a big hit that they also reconsidered re-releasing Rodan. Really? That was actually really? on the docket, and that was reported by Greg Shoemaker in a 1971 uh, issue of JFFJ, Japanese Fantasy Film Journal. And uh, there were other films oh, planned you, uh, at that time, but that became a big hit and sort of caused the Godzilla craze of the 70s. Awesome. It was the double feature release of Monster Zero and War of the Gargantuas. And I'm just going to drop this to you tonight. Anyone who lives in Colorado, anyone from Colorado, Denver, nearby, no? Okay. All right. Uh, I think we're going to be doing a double feature uh, in uh, September uh, in Colorado. Of Monster Zero and War of the Gargantuas. We're working on it right now. Cool. Alamo Draft House. Ooh, nice, nice, nice. Anyway. So you said that Marin Films distributed it. Yes. It, they did some other distribution of Godzilla films, right? Yeah, Godzilla's Revenge. Yeah. And uh, they did that with uh, in tandem with, they would do a package of double feature of Godzilla's Revenge and War of the Gargantuas. Or uh, uh, what was it? Uh, Night of the Burning Doomed, what was the title? The, the Burning British Damned, yeah, yeah. So they would end up with these weird, you know, double features, and there was a, a short run of Godzilla's Revenge under another title, which was Minya, Son of Godzilla, and that was halted by uh, Walter Reed Serling, uh, who had bought the television rights. They had purchased the television rights to Son of Godzilla, and they said, we've already got the Son of Godzilla title. Mm -hmm. And so they... Uh, uh, Henry Schaperstein and Marin pulled that ad campaign and then retitled the film. So they originally marketed it. They weren't trying to fool anybody. They weren't telling people, it's the movies about Minya, the son of Godzilla. Yeah, yeah. So then they retitled it Godzilla's Revenge to get as far away from that title as possible. So. Yeah, it's interesting that this film didn't actually get released until the 70s in the, the States because it came out obviously in 65 in, in Japan. Right. Well, so, you know, like I said, you know, he, the AIP was supposed to release it in 66 or 67 and they were going to also pick up War of the Gargantuas. Those would be released to be released separately. Uh, and then, of course, like I said, Henry Schaperstein had a, some falling out with Sam Arkoff the head of AIP, and said, you know, take your films and shove it. Get out of my office. And so, you know, Henry Schaperstein went schlepping out the door with cans of films. Like, well, who's going to pick up my monster movies? Because he had a production company, but he didn't have a distribution. His only distribution was selling films to AIP. Right, right. And he started with uh, brokering uh, Godzilla vs. The Thing in 64. He had nothing to do with the production of that film. He later claimed to have, but all he did was buy it from Toho and then turned around and just sold it to AIP. Oh, okay. Well, you, we do know, I think the listeners know out there, that this is a co-production, technically, right? With, between yeah, AIP between, and Toho. No, well, actually, um, technically, Henry Schaperstein directly and Toho. Uh, oh, right, because his, yeah. uh, right, so yeah, Schaperstein's, Schaperstein's company was not. Yeah, AIP. right. So it would say, like, uh, you know, Henry J. G. Schaperstein uh, production or Henry G. Schaperstein productions. 
But when he worked on the Japanese side, it was Benedict Productions would be the official name of his company and the Japanese titles. And he based that after Benedict Arnold. <laughs> so he's a traitor to the yeah, American film because industry. Because he's he's working with he's working with the enemy. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm working with the enemy. What a what a what a joker, man. Yeah. Well, he apparently loved these films. Yeah, yeah. You know, he talked very glowingly about uh, you know these films. Was really impressed by the work that you know Superaya did and how efficiently you know uh, Toho's directors like Honda were and uh, to be able to do these elaborate sets like the set in this scene. Is is pretty amazing because you you know, I call it the Star Restaurant for lack of a better name, and, and uh, I think it's called the Star Flower Club oh, in the soundtrack. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, there you go. You heard it. You heard it right here. Kyle knows what he's talking about. So, uh, you know, they built these really big sets that would only be in one scene. You know, and then you know, Tonda's got the nice, you know, transitions between. You know, this P1 flying towards Jupiter, and then they cut to the Star Restaurant. So there's this, this film particularly, of all the 60s Honda films, you know, has all these really super neat transitions, like the one here, which is a very obvious pun transition, which goes from, you know, Kirikubo say, I wish your brother could see me now. I really stand him on his head. Yeah. Yeah, I actually, I love that. And then this is what you cut to. Yeah, you cut to, cut to the astronauts. Yeah. Sorry, 100 degrees, 180 degrees off, old buddy. Yep. Something tells me that wouldn't actually make a big Sorry, difference if you're in space, if you're literally just spinning. <laughs> spin, yeah. Spin no, no, because there's degrees. no up or down or sideways My or mistake, anything old buddy. in space. Yeah, it's, uh, I love the transitions yeah. in this film. Actually, I was wondering uh, if and you have any insight as to why Honda decided to do that in this film and not so much in his other kaiju films. I have if, no idea. Yeah, it'd be interesting <laughs> to find out. Let's go back in time. Let's go back in time and talk to Honda. Next, there she is. But there's so many questions you could have asked Honda, you know, and, yeah. and you, the, the starting point Calling was, you know, where do I start? You know, with, yeah. with so many films that he did and, and the work on all of them. And, and the late Guy Tucker, who was such an instrumental part of the early uh, early days of G-Fest when it was G-Con, uh, you know, interviewed. He had probably about 12 hours of interviews with Honda that he conducted and only very small parts of it ended up in his book, which is very out of print and hard to find, The Age of the Gods, uh, that all those recordings, all those interview, hours of interviews about these films are just sitting with his, you know, with his estate, you know, that is, uh, you know, in the hands of his mother. Um, and, you know, uh, it's, it's really a shame because he asked these types of questions, yeah, you know, pointedly. It, yeah. I, that's a book I totally wish I had in my collection, but unfortunately, it's very, very difficult to find. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the actors in this film. Straight you know, the main main characters, like our heroes, are played by Nick Adams right. and ready. Akira Takarada. Check your readings. Now, Nick Adams, at one point, had degrees. said that he would never work on a foreign picture, but uh, I don't know why he changed his tune. Well, there was this really thing, there was this uh, sort of... Uh, topical thing that was happening that's why that he wrote he wrote this article or, or was quoted it was obviously a publicist had written it and it was published in some movie magazines because uh, there was this uh, call in Hollywood now we all know about outsourcing jobs and uh, a lot of American film production was being taken out of the country and American films were being shot in Europe a lot mostly in Europe because it was much cheaper to shoot in Europe and go to Italy. You would have the same quality of uh, production value 
for like half the cost. And uh, so a lot of actors uh, got together and didn't want to be union busters and, you know, and would say, we're not going to let these foreign American productions, you know, I'm never going to act in them. Yeah. And of course, you know, like two years later, Nick Adams is in Japan making Frankenstein Conquers the World. And uh, part of that reason was, you know, he was uh, up for an Academy Award as a supporting actor. And I can't remember the title of the film right now. Uh, but uh, it was a big Hollywood production and they cut him out because before the Academy Awards, because he started this huge campaign where everybody thought that he was an egotistical, maniacal a-hole. And uh, 100% a, you know, if you watch Guardians of the Galaxy, you know what the rest of that is. <laughs> and, and, and so he took out full-page ads in Variety saying, you know, nominate me, you know, nominate me. I, sh I should win the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for this film. And it was a courtroom drama. Mm -hmm. And it, people were predicting, just who had seen the film before it was released and when it was in early release that, you know, uh, before it was released, I should say, that, you know, Nick is going to really probably be up for, you know, a, a best supporting actor. And so he launched this huge campa campaign that everybody thought was obnoxious. He was just in everyone's face, vote for me, vote for me, vote for me. The studio got so irked by him that they, and the director, they just cut him out of the film. No, really? Yeah. I didn't know so that. So he did all wow. this campaigning, the film was released, and he wasn't hardly in the film. And so that was the big egg on the face, mm -hmm. and his career spiraled downwards very quickly, and people were not coming to him with job offers. Right. And he was on the cusp of being a huge star at that point. And so what happened was, you know, eventually he had to take these foreign jobs. I think before he did Frankenstein Conquers the World, he went to England uh, for American International Pictures and did uh, Die, Monster, Die, which was an adaptation of Color Out of Space, mm -hmm. the Lovecraft story. Uh, for AIP with uh, that's coast that starred top built Boris Karloff. So did uh, as far as you know, did Nick Adams ever mention that he how much he enjoyed working that's in Japan? Because it it oh, yeah. seems pretty apparent when you see this film and Frankenstein conquers the world. I mean, he looks like he is into it. He's actually I'm just going to say it out loud. I think Nick Adams is the, the best American actor that has appeared in a Japanese film, and he really sells the role way more, of course, than, say, Russ Tamblin yeah. in War of the Gargantulas. Well, you know, his, Nick Adams' son told me uh, about 10 years ago, uh, Jeb Adams, he told me that you know, his father would throw himself 100% into the roles that he got. But part of the problem was he, was he so invested himself into these roles that he was kind of, you know, he kind of threw the, you know, he, that actors of his age at that time were all into the method, which means immersing yourself in the role, even if you're playing an astronaut in a monster movie, you know. And he had a tendency to fall in love with all of his lead actresses, <laughs> which leads into some interesting comments a little later about this film. But he did that on almost every film where he become infatuated with the love interest in the film because the character is supposed to be in love with the character. Yeah. So that, you know, caused him some marital problems later. But, you know, uh, his, his son just said, yeah, he was really, really committed. He was really happy because I think when they did Frankenstein Conquers the World, uh, you know, Nick brought his whole family, his, you know, his daughter and his son and his wife. Uh, and uh, they had a great time. They had really great memories of that first trip to Japan. Well, he definitely displays his, uh, his willingness to throw himself into the role, especially in this film and especially uh, once the aliens show up on Earth. I uh, I also want to talk about Akira Takarada. Like uh, he's 
this is actually my favorite role of his too. He's he's fantastic as Ogata in the first Godzilla film, but the the relationship, the the buddy buddy aspect yeah. of this movie. I mean, Glenn and Fuge, yeah. they're awesome. I yeah. mean, they're, they're, I can't think of a better like duo in in the Godzilla films. No, no, not really. I mean, that's why this film stands out so much. And if it weren't for the popularity in uh, European markets in the United States for these films, this film would have never been made exactly this way, if at all. You know, it was the reason why that they started putting uh, Caucasian actors mm-hmm. into these films to have more international appeal and they could have some star billing. Like, even if it was somebody who, you know, was a TV actor or, like Rhodes or, Reason or, or someone that was on their way down, you know. Gotcha, yeah. Uh, you know, Rhodes Reason was sort of like a, you know, second tier. His brother Rex had a bigger career initially, who was the star of uh, This Island Earth. But uh, Nick Adams was definitely, besides Russ Tamlin, who was a bigger star than Nick, but Nick is the star of these films, really. You know? Yeah. And I only wish that... I've, we did a screening 10 years ago of War of the Gargantuas and had Russ Tamlin uh, there live to talk about making the movie. He didn't remember much about actually making the film. He remembered his off time better. because He just said, I was a job, I went and did my scenes, and then I went off and filmed my experimental 8mm movies. Like yeah, he was, you know, was doing all these locations, but watching the film for the first time, he said it was fantastic and it was great. And while you know, and I, getting to know Rust Hamlin, you know, I can't begrudge the man, but you know, it's pretty obvious that the three characters from Frankenstein Conquers the World were supposed to carry over into War of the Gargantuas. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, so I would. There's a secret little part of me that really wishes that Nick Adams was in War of the Gargantuas instead of Rust Hamlin. I think that little part exists in most everybody. And, you know, there's another interesting story about Nick's impact over there, right? So when they made uh, Degora the Space Monster, you know, they got the best thing they could to at the time was they got Robert Dunham, you know, who wasn't (laughs) really a pro actor. He was an amateur actor. He Mm -hmm. did a lot of stage in, in Tokyo in the American Players Club. And no, no, it's not. It's not a. It's that's not a casino that is uh, approved by Telly Savalas, American <laughs> Players Club. For all of you, remember nobody remembers Telly Savalas. I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> so, <laughs> man, I'm old. <laughs> Kojak, nobody. Bueller, okay. Bueller. <laughs> all right, there. Thank you. All right, because in a few years, everyone's just going to know. You know what is it? It's going to be. You know, The Rock is Kojak, and that or Vin Diesel, and that's everybody's just going to remember them. But uh, now I don't right remember time? what I was going to say. Yeah, you? That's part of the comedy act, folks. Yeah, Stick around. Don't forget to tip your waitress. <laughs> what, was it? what was I saying? Uh, you were saying you're, you're, about, you're actually about to tell us another story. <laughs> I was waiting for the story. Well, what was the story? Uh, you didn't get into it. No, what was, I, what was the lead into that? Uh, we were talking about how much he throws himself into the roles. Right. And... Uh, I don't remember, but wow! But okay. I did great. want to talk more about Akira Takarada. Yes, um, he, I interviewed him as part of the group interview in the uh, documentary that we just did. And when we started talking about Monster Zero, you know the the Japanese actors they don't memorize all the names and all that stuff. So uh, when I said, you know, you three actors were in Monster Zero together. Uh, and they started discussing the film Discuss what? and what they were all doing. When Takarada asked if Nick Adams was in that movie and playing Glenn with him, you could just really feel that he had such a fond memory 
of right. working with Nick Adams, and it yeah. was moving, yeah. really moving. And yeah. if, of course, I've seen that interview like a million right. times over from and, editing and, it. But yeah, yeah it's, and Haruo Nakajima, who plays Godzilla himself, yes, is, is extremely fond of Nick Adams mm-hmm. to the point of punching you out if you say anything negative about Nick Adams. I'll have to remember never to say anything negative about no, Nick Adams no. around he, he just loved Nick. He just loved Nick because Nick, he said Nick would come into the studio every day when they were doing Monster Zero, let's say, or even Frank Sankofer's World. He would make sure to visit the special effects set first. Right, he would yeah. come in and go, Ohio! Which is good morning in Japanese. And then he would say, Nippon Ichi! Which is, Japan is number one. And with that, Japan is number one with Doug, you know, King Ghidra. Yeah, so King Ghidra, this is his second appearance, obviously. He was in Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster the year before this. Uh, King Ghidra is, without a doubt, one of the fan favorites of Godzilla's foes, rubber-suited foes. He better be. And uh, a couple of friends of mine that are, that are much older than me said when they first saw Monster Zero, there was a guy in the Philippines and Monster Zero played there in uh, 66. He said that he walked into the theater with his mom, and this scene was on when they walked in. Yeah. Because back in those days, you know, you could walk in the movie at any time. You just bought your ticket and walked in, and you could sit and watch it again if you wanted. Walked in and seen Ghidra coming across the surface of Planet X throwing his thunderbolts. The kid said, that put a shock through me. And that's the same resonance, the story that resonates through people who, uh, a lot of the big special effects artists of today, American special effects artists, who would talk about their first experience walking into seeing Seventh Voyage of Sinbad or Jason and the Argonauts and going like, I just stopped and froze and went, oh my God. Yeah. And so the Ghidra had that, that the scene had that same kind of appeal to people. When I first saw this film, you know, it was definitely, holy crap, that is awesome. Do you have any specific memories of when you saw the film? Like, were you... Yeah, unfortunately, I, I, didn't, I, unfortunately I didn't get to see it on, on, in the theater. Uh, I somehow, you know, either was too young to, to know that it was playing and conned somebody in my family into taking me, or that, you know, I just missed it entirely. It just went under my radar. Uh, you know, what's a little kid to do? You know, but when it came on TV a couple years later, about 73 or something like that, you know, still being a young kid, it would play... Um, they they brought it to television on a on a on a station called KBHK TV forty four, which was you know a UHF channel, and they did this whole big thing of uh, we're showing this movie without commercial interruption. And it was sponsored by some you know some local car dealership. So there's an ad at the beginning and at the end, and they did the same thing with Mons- with uh, War of the Gargantuas. And so it was to get everyone to watch. You know, because they're not going to show any commercials during the movie. <laughs> That's unheard of. Blasphemy. So, you know, that was the first time I saw it, and I was just glued to the TV for, you know, 90 minutes, and, uh, you know, everybody had to shut up, you know. <laughs> yeah. I actually, at that time, I, I had a, you know, I had a little TV in my own room, like a little, uh, probably like a 12-inch black and white TV. So well, the first time I saw this movie, it was in black and white. You know, uh, because only because I'm watching it on a little black and white TV. It was a hand-me-down. Like, you know, (laughs) kid, you're taking over the living room TV with these monster movies. Here, we're going to give you Uncle Rory's TV. Go in your room and leave us alone. We want to watch Mannix. Yeah, I think my... I don't actually have a first memory of watching this film because I didn't see it until I was an adult. And unfortunately, it it was one of those things where when I was 
getting right into the Godzilla films and like really actively seeking them all out. Uh, when I came across Monster Zero, probably on VHS tape as Godzilla vs. Monster Zero, I did watch it, but because there wasn't very much monster action in this film, I probably didn't give it too much of the time of day. And it wasn't until I started diving deeper into the, the mythos and the, the history of these films that I really became enamored with this film. Yeah, on so many levels, there's, this is Toho firing on all cylinders. Absolutely. And uh, it's completely different than the film that came before it, Gator the Three-Headed Monster. Mm-hmm. It's, Gator the Three-Headed Monster was equally, it was a little texturally the same uh, as Godzilla vs. the Thing, mm-hmm. but it was still different because it started gro- going into the realm of fairy tale a little more. It's a very, Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster, or Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, whatever Toho wants you to call it, um, you know, has this, yes, this fairy, basically a princess from a faraway country that doesn't exist. Yeah. And you have some of the happens, happenings in the film are kind of fairy tale-ish, and then you get the monsters to be more anthropomorphic where they're talking to each other. Thank you. Which, that's <laughs> night and day with Godzilla vs. the Thing. But that's still, because of bringing in Mothra into Godzilla vs. the Thing, brings more of a fantasy element. And the reason why that started happening is because you had Mothra in 1961 was such a phenomenal hit that they said, well, that's the direction we're going to go in with these films. You know, of course, you know, you have King Kong versus Godzilla, which was, you know, serial comic. And then was super successful. Right, you know? yeah. And they just decided, well, we're going to go more in the fantasy realm with each film. And then you get to Monster Zero, and it's completely different texturally. Now, this isn't... I know that this is not the first alien invasion film in Japan, right? No. You had, you had Warning from Space uh, from Daiei Studios in 56. Mm. And that was the first color science fiction film in Japan. Oh, okay. And then you, uh, that might have been 57. So, but technically, Rodan was the first color monster picture. But if you want to talk about fantasy films, Toho did another film the year before Rodan, um, which is an adaptation of the Chinese fairy tale, Madame Whitesnake. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a color fantasy film. But the first monster film was Rodan that was shot in color. And the first uh, science fiction film or alien film was uh, Warning from Space. That's what those, the pirates, the big starfish creatures with the eye in the center of their, their uh, I guess they don't have a chest. It would just be an eye in the center. <laughs> but the Monster Zero is basically... Toho taking uh, the, the plot of the Mysterians, then mixing it with Godzilla, and that was the conscious thought. Like, why don't we combine, you know, like something like the Mysterians with the Godzilla picture and do a hybrid, you know? And and it was, you know, it was very, very popular, you know. And that's why people today really, I think, dig this movie. I I don't doubt it. I mean, I'm assuming that it did really well in Japan when it came oh, yeah. out in '65. You know, by the night, but without getting into a whole big technical lecture about like Japanese motion picture ticket sales and, mm-hmm. and all this. You know, the, height, the height of Japanese motion pictures the post-war period was uh, 1961. There were the most theaters and they had the most attendees. And then you see TV coming in and taking away people. And then you see the shrinkage and the reduction of movie theaters. Mm-hmm. And despite that, when people look at the plain numbers, like in the American Godzilla fandom and, and people uh, putting together facts and figures and you know, people run around going like, you know, Godzilla, King Kong vs. Godzilla sold the most tickets of any of the Showa movies. Well, you know, that's true. That's a hard number. But at the same time, they were still at the height of uh, hardtop theaters mm-hmm. and, 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 and moviegoers. And then you see television affecting that and taking that away. So if you do a per capita 
Yeah. You know, you yeah. see that the numbers are still pretty steady, even though the theaters are shrinking and the audiences are being taken away by television. And when Monster Zero was made, we were still, it came out in December in Japan of 1965. We were about uh, less than a month away from the premiere of A.G. Uh, Subaraya's TV show, Ultra Q. That came on in January 2nd, 1966. Yes. And then kids all this over Japan said, why do we have to go to the movies and pay to see monster movies when we can watch them every week for free on TV? And that substantially affected uh, the, the Japanese monster movie, the Kaiju Ega, because then television became a major competitor at that point. Yeah, you can really tell as the, as the movies progress in the Toho you know, continuity of Godzilla. You know, each one sort of gets a little less awesome. I mean, Destroy All Monsters, I don't, we don't need to go into the movies, but Destroy All Monsters is better, and then as soon as Destroy All Monsters hits, it's like... Yeah, and part of the reason why you have a dip, so to speak, in quality or, or relative quality, and a lot of people have really wondered why Toho uh, in the 70s made uh, these movies that were, you know, just kind of threadbare, and if you want to say that, or that were uh, not exactly as high caliber as the films in the 60s like is him. because Destroy All Monsters, they decided to, before they produced Destroy All Monsters, because of the way that television, again, was, was, was kicking yeah, butt and taking great. names and taking away so audiences, and that's why Japanese films started, uh, at that period, from all the studios, started putting more blood and nudity and violence, so stuff that you couldn't do on TV, which is reflective of what happened in America 10 years prior. You know, the more exploitative you could be with the film, the more audiences would come and see it and yeah. take you away from TV. Gotcha. So with the, Jap with the monster movies, with the Japanese monster films, uh, they, Toho decided that these films were too expensive to make, the returns weren't there anymore, and the foreign sales were down. So they said, well, we're going to make one last Godzilla film. And Godzilla, uh, God what was it? Destroy All Monsters was considered the last and promoted initially when they announced production as the last Godzilla movie. They were packing it in. Toho was going to retire Godzilla. And that's why they did this big House of Frankenstein monster mash film. And the film did you know, fairly well yeah. for what it was and who they were marketing at, and et cetera. And uh, a year later, they decided, since foreign sales went back up, they went, well, Tomiyuki Tanaka, the producer, said, well, maybe we should try this again, but... Kids really like Godzilla more than adults, so why don't we do kitty matinee packages? Right. Toei Studios, the rival of Toho, had already been having success with doing their uh, Toei cartoon parades or Toei cartoon festivals, where they would do a feature film, like usually an animated feature film, and a bunch of short subjects. And so you would have like a three-hour package, so parents could drop their kids off at the theater. <laughs> and then go shopping, and then three hours later pick up their kid. And that happened in the United States as well in the 50s and 60s and 70s. I remember that. That is one thing I do remember from my childhood is getting dropped off at the theater for like a couple matinees. Right. But here in Japan, you have the major studios doing their own kitty matinee packages and doing the entire package and the selling and, and, the, and also the, own the chain theaters to show these at like the Toho theaters. So with uh, Godzilla's Revenge, Godzilla's Revenge was conceived and marketed as a kitty matinee package that was shown with a bunch of short subjects. Mm -hmm. That went so well that they greenlit Yogg, Monster from Space, a.k.a. Space Amoeba, and that was also part of a kitty matinee package, even though it was a real throwback to the 60s. And then you have, you know, Smog Monster, Hedera through Terra of Mechagodzilla. Right. So a lot of people said, well, 
you know, the movies went downhill and they weren't successful, so, you know, they ended them in 75 when actually Godzilla's Revenge proved was so successful that they produced five more movies yeah. after that. You that know, was that, the Champion Matsuri Festival? Yeah, Champion Matsuri. Yeah, Champion, the Toho Champion Festival series where they would package episodes of Ultraman or some cartoons with the feature film. So the films, Godzilla's Revenge... Godzilla vs. Hedera, Gigan, Megalon, Mechagodzilla, and Terror of Mechagodzilla were conceived, produced, written, and directed, and marketed directly to children. They weren't meant for general audiences or adults. So when some of these films came over, like Megalon, like Cinefantastic Magazine did a review that said, you know, uh, is this the kind of thing that the Japanese are passing off as science fiction today? Right. Not knowing the context, which was this was a kiddie movie. Just like the Showa Gamera movies were. Right, yeah. You know, these weren't meant for, as one reviewer, an American reviewer said, these films are obviously produced for, and remember, this is not me saying this, this is a reviewer at the time, quote unquote, these movies are made for retarded adults. Hmm. Well, I have to disagree with that statement. Right. I think. And, and going yes. from like kiddie fair to adult fair, you know, we have a true confession from Nick. Hey, what's up? That, uh, you know, hey, he's been uh, making oh, whoopee okay. with uh, Miss Namikawa, <laughs> which is the first time in a Godzilla film that the subject of sex comes up. True. Yeah. And it's just a throwaway, a throwaway line. This is a really weird scene. Uh, this is one of the ones that sort of stuck out to me even as like the first time I watched it. I was like, why do you need to drive all the way out into the mountains? They were in Tokyo. That's, I mean, to get out to the wilderness like this, you'd have to drive for hours. You can't just tell me like why you want to take this drive like earlier in the trip. It was probably Nick Adams put that in his contract. You know, <laughs> I need I want to, be to get out of the city. Yeah. <laughs> you know, me and my family want to. You know, here's my contract. Me and my family want to. You know, go see the countryside. So why don't we film a bunch of stuff out there? Yeah. Well, uh, but it's a nice location change from going from oh, the urban setting to the countryside, definitely, yeah. and it sets up. You know, obviously, the reason why they go out there is, is just so they can be at Lake Myogen when the saucers come out, which is like the next, the next scene, you know? So they just drove out there and, ooh, hey, we just happen to be at the place the saucers are in the lake. <laughs> That's the happenstance of kaiju films. That's right. The, the relationship, though, between Nick Adams and Akira Takarada, it's really great yeah. and fantastic. Yeah, they seem like... I wish they would have been in more movies together. Yeah, they really seem like they're old, old buddies. Yeah. They have this rapport. And for me as a kid, too, it was like one of my heroes growing up, uh, in general, not an exact person, were astronauts when I was a kid, you know? The, they, that was the last great American heroes were, you know, uh, the astronauts, I feel. And... So being, having these two guys be astronauts, like, man, that's what I wanted to do, man. I wanted to fly in space. And then to have, like, Godzilla in outer space, that's a high concept, too. He's <laughs> giving you what you want. We're going to put Godzilla in space. And if you just put that down on paper, you would go, like, nobody's going to want to see that movie. So this scene, I know we haven't been, like, referencing what's on the screen a lot, but this scene where the... Uh, the water is bubbling and churning and the light's coming out of it and everybody thinks that's Godzilla. Ready. Uh, is actually probably one of my favorite science... Not science fiction. One of my favorite special effects scenes in the entire series. Because when the... Spaceship. When the spaceship comes out yeah. and the mist is, like, that? hanging on to the bottom right. of the Exxon really ship, cool. it is so beautiful. And if you see the bottom right there... Yeah. They, I don't know if they're going to show this, repeat the shot... Well, they've got the, a, another ship comes out later, right. too. But there was that, sh the, the, the first sequence of shots there, 
where you had on the bottom of the screen you see trees, the tops of trees. Mm -hmm. That was a matte painting. This was an indoor pool in one of the sound stages, and they weren't covering the edge of the pool because the cinematographer didn't know where to put his camera. That's just ridiculous. Cinematographers know where to set up their cameras and how to get their shots. They put that there to show you that it's not a bay. They were giving perspective that that's the other side of the lake. I was uh, very fortunate enough to pick up a Exion flying saucer model kit <laughs> when I came back to G-Fest, like, probably in 2009. Oh, you bastard. Well, it's a little <laughs> tiny one, but it's really rad, and I have yet to paint it, but it's uh, it's, it's sitting next to my Billiken 66. And, and here's one of my favorite uh, composite shots. This is where you can't oh, see very, the line. Nice, it's, yeah. it's seamless, and you don't see, you know, the, usually you have a mistake of a blue screen line or, or the, uh, where it, the, the uh, matte doesn't match, and it kind of jumps around. And this is a matte painting. It's not a very fantastic matte painting, uh, seeing it uh, on, this, you know, on this flat widescreen edition. But if you, when you see it in a theater, I've had the opportunity to see Monster Zero since several times in a theater in Japan and, and in the United States. And it looks a lot better, especially if the screen is a, co uh, a concave screen where it curves so that it gets rid of that. Also, the only part of this shot uh, of the saucer that we just last well, saw was the bottom part of it with the ramp. The rest of it was a matte painting. So, obviously, these are the controller. Uh, this is the controller and his crew from Planet X. Uh, not only is Yoshio Tsuchiya the controller and the guy who's in the screen right now, but there are some other famous or semi-famous Toho actors around him, one of which is Ben Furuya. I just found out recently that the actor who played Ultraman is one of the Exians. Yeah. He was the guy in the Ultraman suit, and he uh, first appeared in Mothra in 1961 as one of the photographers, uh, assistant photographers uh, from the newspaper that Frankie Sakai's character worked for. And he has no dialogue, but he's in a bunch of shots in the film, and because he's so Faria is, is so tall that you know you can't help but notice him in any in any scene. And uh, uh, Faria is uh, in like King. You could spot him in King Kong versus Godzilla and a couple other films. And if we do an audio commentary in the future for Ghidra, I can show you that he was he's, he plays six characters in Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster. Really, yeah. six characters? That's awesome. So yeah, the those those Planet X aliens, and especially Suchia with his crazy hand signals, I love that so much. Yeah. It's like so quirky. Uh, at at some point in my life, I was actually trying to <laughs> integrate those hand signals into my my normal speech, but I didn't. I'm glad I didn't now. Is but the thing they did crazy. with the makeup on the, because the, ex, the Exites or the Exians or whatever people want to call them these days, the Exilians, whatever you want to call them, the people from Planet X, uh, because they've been living underground, you can't really notice it's very subtle depending on the print that you see, but when you see it in a theater, you'll notice that their skin color and the makeup is very pallid because showing that they've been living underground and not getting any sunshine. And, uh, this sort of connection between them and, and machines and the computer thing is illustrated by uh, Yoshio Tsuchiya's very, very carefully constructed uh, and, and, and uh, precisely moved body uh, language. He'll like turn his torso and then turn his head and it's almost like he's doing the robot, but it's so subtle, it's not ridiculous. Yeah. And you have to really point it out to people and they go, oh crap, he's doing it. Now, speaking of motions and Nick Adams just did this thing where he 
He did it a little earlier, a couple scenes back when they go to the lake, where he stands there, puts his hands on his hips, opens his jacket, and then pulls his, you know, pulls the jacket back and puts his hands on his back on his hips. That is an old movie trick for drawing attention to yourself when you have no dialogue in a scene, so all the viewers are looking at you and not the other actors. <laughs> and he does it so many times, I want to start a drinking game. Every time Nick Adams steals a scene, somebody bring take us a drink. here now. Yes. <laughs> and this is, this is one of the great you know, special effects scenes in the movie because there's you know, all these opticals that are going on that uh, are just fantastic. And at the time, uh, you know, the late Koichi Kawakita at this point in time was in the optical department at uh, Toho, and he was the guy animating. He was one of the animators doing all the rays of Ghidra and Godzilla and the Exite uh, spaceships, and he was doing that. Uh, he came aboard during Gorath, uh, and then he was in the optical department until the 60s, and Kawakita also, what a lot of people don't know, that he was the assistant optical effects animator uncredited on the original Ultraman and Ultra 7, too. Hmm. I think he also worked on Ultra Q, if, I, if I'm remembering right. He was working under uh, Sadao Izuka, who's still alive, and he's like, you know, the guy that was responsible for creating the looks of all the optical effects, Godzilla's ray and Ghidra's bolts, and et cetera, et cetera. You don't know what you're saying. So is there ever any reason that uh, Rodan is in the mountain? Well, you know, Rodan, let's see. Rodan was in the volcano. True. Mount Aso. You so mean at the end of at the end of, at the, you know, end of the original you know, Rodan, Rodan yeah. and then comes out of the volcano in Ghidra. So maybe it would make sense that he was somehow burrowed into a mountain. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Where would Rodan hang out? Yeah. And hide or hibernate. Hey, you know? That car. It makes sense that Godzilla would be underwater hibernating. But you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. It's a weird Rodan couldn't anomaly. find a large enough birdhouse. I have no idea. <laughs> So here, here are actors getting onto the uh, the Exian ship, yeah, putting about a lot of trust in these aliens. Yeah, yeah, they're about to go on Captain EO, have the Michael Jackson experience. You keep all making all these super eggs. old references that I don't know how many people are going to get. Nobody. No. They're going to go, there was this guy on stage babbling about stuff. I don't know what the hell he was talking about. <laughs> I thought this was a Godzilla commentary. So uh, the... I have no longer <laughs> The one, one guy we have not talked about yet is Jun Tazaki, who plays Dr. Sakurai in this, this scene and the rest of the movie, of course. Jun Tazaki was one of those character actors that you see a lot of in the Showa Godzilla films. He uh, it plays Captain Jinguchi. My favorite role of his in these films is the editor at the newspaper in Mothra vs. Godzilla. He's awesome in that movie. And what is... What is uh, 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 the character, the, the egg-eating... Oh, Yu Fujiki's uh, character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yu Fujiki's character. Like, I'm much more afraid of the Godzilla than I am of the editor. <laughs> He's meaner. Or it's the other way around, isn't it? I'm much more afraid of the editor than I am of Godzilla. He's meaner. Jun Suzaki was really blustery in that in that role, man. He was just a mean, mean J.J. <laughs> He's much more subdued in this film. Uh, but still, it's... It's always awesome to see these actors like come back and be in more and more pictures. And yeah, it gives a familiarity to these films that they use these actors over and over again. And, and if you watch other Toho films from the period, you know, spy movies, action movies, dramas, comedies, Akira Kurosawa films, you'll see the same actors in all those movies. It wasn't like 
they made these movies that they would be criticized when they'd come to America because they were dubbed. And some critics didn't understand that the dubbing isn't the actual actor's voice and it's not a reflection of the original actor's performance. But they would say, these actors suck. And then they would review a Kurosawa movie with the same actors and go, the actors are brilliant. Because they just did not realize they were the same actors. So Toho Studios at the time, like American Studios had in the decades before, they had a studio system where you had all these actors that were on contract at the studio. And so the different directors or producers would go, we're going to get these actors, these actors, these actors. So you'll see a lot of these same actors appearing in, you know, big prestige movies and comedies and office dramas and all kinds of films. And you wa there's two films on the Criterion Collection on Hulu starring Akira Takarada. They're sp kind of spy movies where he plays kind of a James Bondian kind of a guy. One is called... Uh, I keep getting confused between the English and the Japanese titles and what Criterion is calling them. Uh, one of them is Golden Eyes, and uh, that is available for viewing on, on Hulu. And the other one is known as, the Japanese title was 100 Shot, 100 Killed. And I can't remember what the English title is right now, but uh, the, cr the Criterion title. Those aren't available on DVD, but they are available for viewing on Hulu, and you'll see all these same actors in those movies as well. So here's this uh, interesting ex-alien talking to Namikawa. We have not talked about Kumi Mizuno yet. No. Kumi Mizuno, fan favorite as well. And uh, I really, we almost, like... We got this close to getting her for the documentary. It would have really? been a huge boon, Sorry. yeah. But unfortunately, she that was she was working. Unfortunately for us, she was working, uh, and and couldn't make it. But yeah, she's a fan favorite, and it's very easy to see why. Yeah, Honda said something along the lines of she looked, she had a very good way of portraying Western style acting, right? Right, because she could really kind of show her emotions. Uh, uh, in a Western way that wasn't uh, very melodramatically Japanese. That was usually uh, expected of Japanese films at the time. So she was more of a modern Japanese actress than a lot of the other actresses that were being very, uh, not stereotypical, but they were, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, a trope style of acting. Right, right. You know, so. Yeah, I recently watched Birth of Japan, which uh, right. she appears in, obviously, and she's much younger. It seems like she's much younger. Yeah, I think she was 16 when she made that film. Not in this film. No, no, no. Birth of Japan. Long three-hour movie. Yeah, it's a historical drama about the mythological birth of Japan, and it has uh, the showcase in the film is uh, Toshiro Mifune, the star of Yojimbo and The Seven Samurai, uh, fighting an eight-headed dragon. And that was uh, Toho's 1,000th production, so they put every single actor that they had in their stable on film for that three-hour epic. Wow. And it culminates with, uh, you know, the, there's the highlight battle between uh, with the Yamato no Orochi, the eight-headed dragon, which was also the inspiration for Ghidra. Of zero one and zero two. Yes, sir. Standing by. So one of the, uh, I think it's coming up right now. <laughs> there's a... One of the things I love about Toho movies is the mech, the, uh, the, sci the science and the, the machines that they use for, for their various battles and so forth, like the ex-alien saucers. I love those very I much. I just love this the tunnel and the, the, and the design on the back of the door, you know, that, those circles crossing over. It's just this really neat attention to detail. 
Yeah, I actually have no idea how they made that happen. Like, I'm what? Just, how they had the saucers go in the how tunnel? The saucers go in I and they tell have you. the lights and stuff. Go I ahead. can tell you how they did yeah. that. What they did is they had the saucers on wires that went into the tunnel. Mm-hmm. So the, the ships, the saucers were guided on wires into. So they wait till the saucers pass all the way in, mm-hmm. and then they close the door, which pinched the wires, and they just hoped that the wires What's wouldn't that? be visible on screen. Oh. And the lights were just sequen- sequential Gold lights. Is far less valuable to us here than is water. <laughs> so there's another speaking of the Mecca. We have King Ghidorah showing King's back retreat. up. Zero. And they are going to deploy the Exians. are going to deploy this uh, device to burst the bubbles. I love this, by the way. All the canisters like going, yeah. oh, it's Ghidorah. Yeah, it's kind of like they're almost like the mushrooms, the dancing mushrooms in Fantasia. Yes, it's very much like yeah, that. So you have this weird thing. We don't know what that is, but it looks cool. But then you have this thing come out. And it's repurposed. That's a repurposed previous Toho Mecca. That's the atomic heat ray cannon from Mothra. They just sprayed some glitter on it. Yeah, they just sprayed glitter on it. They made it fabulous. <laughs> because space is, is fabulous. fabulous. Especially if you, you know, follow Irwin Allen. If it's lost in space, you know it's fabulous. Oh, the pain, the pain, the William. And he's awake. The big G. Now, I'm not a huge fan of this 66, 65 and 66 Godzilla suit, uh, Dysenso Goji. Yeah. Oh, I just believe. one little comment about that Ghidra yeah, that landed. That wasn't the suit. That was a half-sized miniature of Ghidra. So they would combine things. So that's kind of seamless. You don't really notice that it's not the suit. So they'd switch between that. So the landing scene was an actual, you know, a half-sized model. Right, right. Wire-operated. We are watching in... This, uh, but this Ghidra suit is it's the same one from the previous movie, right? Oh, yeah. 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 They kept that through all the way through Gigan. By the time it was a Gigan, it was like, just shoot the thing in the head and put it out of, the, out of its misery. <laughs> and then, of course, then they dragged it out again for, for uh, Zone Fighter, the TV show. All droopy and sad. Yes. So they, I think what they do, and correct me if I'm wrong, is they basically they'll replace parts of the costume, parts of the Ghidra costume based off of what's still working and and because uh, I know the well, wings have been changed. When they, when they make, I've been on the sets of enough of these films now that uh, they have a kaiju maintenance right. while they're filming. So in between the shots, there are these guys that are just designated to only take care of the suits. That's their job. And what they do is if any scales are off the suit or falling off the suit, they have to sit there in between shots and fix the suit. So they're on-site maintenance repair. So I'll get back to the Godzilla suit in a second. But the Shade Dance. Can you tell us a little bit about the Shade Dance? Yeah. Now, this is something, if I were the American distributor of this film, I would have cut that out. For the original release, because, you know, 40 years later, they'd put it out on DVD and Blu-ray, and we'd all see the uncut version. But um, that is is a joke. Like, some of the jokes I've been making tonight that I'm not connecting with you is because they're old jokes from a different culture, from a galaxy far, far away a long time ago. But uh, that's actually based on a topical thing that was popular in Japan, which was a comic book that was called uh, Aso Matsukun, and, uh, meaning, uh, oh, so it's little Matsu. And he was this goofy character that uh, was, it was a gag, what the Japanese call a gag comic. It was just a, you know, a funny little thing about the misadventures of this you know, schleb, you know, this total schlub. And uh, 
when he would get excited if he saw a cockroach or was suddenly startled by, you know, whatever, like a black cat, he would jump in the air and do that thing with his hands and go, shit! <laughs> so that was really popular at the time. So people in Japan would run around, like all the school kids would run around and go, shit! To each other. And everybody knew that. They were all connected by this thing. It would be like someone saying, how many people like the original Robocop before I shoot myself in the foot again? Anybody like the original Robocop? Okay, all right. Okay. Yeah. So it would be the same thing as everyone running around going, I'd buy that for a dollar. So it was a catchphrase, you know, this shit. And what happened was uh, Subaraya went, I think I'm going to make Godzilla do this shit. Really? Yeah. yeah and Honda said, I don't think that's a good idea. I think that's going to look ridiculous because the rest of the movie is pretty you know, square-jawed, straight-faced, and that's just kind of really out of left field. And Super Eye said, the kids are going to love it. Don't worry about it. Yeah. I mean, I actually, I think it's one of those things about Godzilla that has become endearing over the last 60 years. And I don't have a problem with it, but I kind of agree with you, man. Like, if I was the U.S. distributor, it would be so easy to cut that out yeah, just and just not have... Yeah. It would have zero effect on the on the story right. in the movie, yeah. Yeah, just in 1970. Right, let's get out of here. You know, we don't want to be reconstructionists. But, sure, you know, sure, but it yeah. it was, you know, in the time it was made, I would have cut that out because that would turn, you know, the audience from grinning to grimacing, you know, I think at that time. Yeah. It might have been more favorably would viewed be. over time and allow us to see, like, eventually some uncut Japanese version released on DVD or whatever that... You could go like, "Wow, that's kind of goofy," but you, without the historical context, it, it seems just—it seems—it's it, already goofy. But it just is a non sequitur to mm-hmm. anybody outside of Japanese culture. Well, I think you'll agree, Arkham. Well, I'm glad that uh, Glu- <laughs> Gluji, good lord, it's been a long day. I'm glad that Fuji and Glenn. <laughs> Is that there? I could say that, right? Gluji, Fuji, Fuji? Glu- no, yeah. Gluji. That's like saying, you know. Water is not uh, <laughs> ah, I can't even talk. Uh, ben Affleck. Mission Control, Bernard. I think we're in trouble. Uh, no, I'm glad that uh, they got to explore a little bit of the Planet X base and, and find out that Namikawa is actually an alien. And, uh, that, and that all, all the, the women... Ladies, and yeah. all the, it's, it, you know, it, it's, it's implied. Uh, they don't say it directly, but all the women on Planet X are cloned. They're all clones. Seriously, gentlemen. You have violated our yeah, more of those awesome hand signals. And there was something that Suchia did for this film because he would really also like Nick Adams, and that's why Nick Adams and Yoshio Suchia also really, really, really hit it off as well uh, behind the scenes, uh, is that uh, Suchia was also this intense method actor. And so to play this role, if you look at his body movements, like I said earlier, you know, it's very calculated, but also he came up with his own alien language so there are a couple scenes in the Japanese version cut out of the American version where there's a cutaway where he says something like, Oh, yeah, And there's no subtitles in the Japanese version. It was just this mysterious language that he spoke, and I think it's only in two scenes in the Japanese version. Yeah, there's one when, they're, when Glenn and Fuji are leaving Planet X for the first right. time, and they're, the Planet X aliens are basically saying goodbye, and right after they say goodbye, he laughs, yeah, he and then right laugh. after the sinister laugh, he makes that sound, and it actually sounds kind of like rude, like it sounds like, ah, sayonara, suckers, we're gonna yeah. get you. That's sort of the, the feel I got from it. And that's, you know, that's 
what Suchia would do when he played these roles. When uh, Yosio Suchia was also, how many people are in love with the Mysterians? Okay, all two of you. Uh, in the Mysterians, uh, Yosio Suchia was going to be cast as the hero in the film, and he because he had just come off of Seven Samurai and was kind of a, a big name at Toho at the time, and he said, "No, I want to play the leader of the Mysterians." And they said, well, no, well, you know, if you're going to have a mask on and the, and the, and the eyepiece and no one's going to see your face. He goes, no, I want to play the leader of the Mysterians. And so that's what they, they, they he insisted and they gave him the role. And, uh, and he also came up with an alien dialect in that, too. But that's only in the uh, Japanese version. Yeah, they hear it very, very subtly in the Japanese version. He talks like this. So, you know, it's like, you know, how the Japanese used to improve on American cars and ideas and, you know, make smaller things like the transistor radio and better sports cars and things like that. So now, you know, the Japanese take their spaceship to Planet X and the, and the Xites make a, a better, more efficient P1. <laughs> and they, now it goes from a two-seater sports car to a three-seater. So I guess now is a good time for me to talk about the suit. The 65-66 suit, the Daisenso Goji suit, as it's known. It's actually not one of my favorites, even though this is my favorite Godzilla film. Um, but what I was going to say is that if you actually look at the Godzilla suits throughout history, at least to a certain, at least through the Showa era, you can actually see like the evolution Hello. of How like nice the visual evolution of the suit and like the shape of the head, the shape of the face. You can you almost, I would like to see somebody do the thing uh, where they use computers to morph. Well, yeah. Morph it so you can see how subtle the changes the were throughout right. the decades. And, you know, part of that is, too, is when you get to the Heisei films, the reason why Godzilla looks more consistent, where, you know, you do side by side, you know, you can tell the Bio Goji differently from the Mosu Goji or, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, but they were, that's, at that point, they were molding. So they were sculpting and casting heads. Mm-hmm. Back in these days, the way they made the Godzilla suits is even the, the faces were sculpted, but they didn't mold them. They just built up off of the, the sculpt of the head, and the whole body was foam buildup. So that's why every suit uh, looked different. And I think also, Tsuburai at this time really didn't care. It's like, let's make him look a little this way this time, or let's make him look a little more like that. And it was just because of his whim to not make Godzilla look the same in every picture. But uh, it was also part of the technology of the time and the fact that they were just doing build-ups, you know, instead of, uh, you know, sculpting and casting and just pulling from molds. It makes sense, though. I mean, uh, has anybody out there seen the special feature on the Daikaiju Varan DVD where they actually go to the suit maker and yeah, he shows the process of making the Varan suit? If you have not, sounds like you haven't. It's really fascinating, especially if you like the idea of how, how these suits con- were constructed. And, I mean, I, I really, with the exception of a, you know, the way they land the P1. Like, I, I think this movie is, like, really unflawed. Well, you know, even so that, you know, it's, you know, with the P1s landing there and, you know, you have the fire coming out, which probably shouldn't look like that. But the shot is impressive, and it's a one-take static camera shot because of the composition of the shot, the perspective, the way the perspective is set up, and then you have the car moving towards it at the same time as the ship's coming down. So you have movement in the shot. 
So it's, you know, it, it is still kind of impressive, and there's no optical effects or no composites. It's just yeah, yeah. a pure in-camera model shot. It's just really cool, just I like, because it I is. I do like the car, though, like the way that they have that car in there just kind of so gives it that extra realism, an extra realism. And there's a lot realism. more of that kind of, like, cool-looking vehicle stuff later when the A-Cycle light rays come out. Mm, I can't wait to talk about those. So in the Japanese version of this film, it's a cure for cancer, not a cure for all diseases, right? Right. Yeah. Big shock. They're tricking you, earthlings. We've given them our monsters. It's almost kind of like, oh, we've given them our monsters. What are they going to do to us? And then all of a sudden they're like, now you are our slaves. We're going to use the monsters against you. You know, it's great that they, they did it on audio tape, too. It's like invasion by audio tape. Actually, one of my favorite aspect not one of my favorite but one of the funny aspects of Atragon is i think about the the film that yeah, they the send super, the and they're like film. yes the uh, the continent of moo has a fantastic post production facility yes they do they make the, well, they usually they would make movies and this is an interesting uh, uh, you know montage to kind of express without actually shooting footage all over the world or, or sourcing other footage that because of the excite saying we're taking over the world, you know, the entire population of the planet starts rioting and freaking out. And it's a sort of documentarian, obviously, which, which Honda was really good at. Uh, and it, it kind of illustrates what's going on. And it, it's similar to things that were being done in the 60s when uh, people were also, there were lots of riots and protests around the world for various, you know, things happening like the Vietnam War. So that kind of resonated with audiences at the time, too. Yeah, this and is another one the, of those yeah, scenes with, yeah. it looks like they built a set just well, for this particular yes, scene. Yeah, this is the epic, like, Romeo and Juliet star-crossed, literally star-crossed lovers scene. Tell me about it, baby. Tell me oh, about man. it, baby. Yeah, this is, like, the best Nick Adams dialogue is in this scene. I mean, you can't Yeah, this, this is actually it. the pivotal scene in the film. Oh, no, Glenn. That was different. True, I was assigned to spy on you, but you've come to me more to me than anything. Look, you've got to get out of this place and take off that getup of yours. No. You have to become a citizen of our planet X so we can marry. That's the only way we can save you. <laughs> I like the idea of the... Look, I mean, come this on. is just an we're elaborate ruse to get him to marry her. <laughs> we were controlled by machines. In defense of Earth, we're going to fight I also love how he champion. says robots. Because that was the, the style of the time. To say well, not, not only the style of times, but he was from, uh, you know, he was from India. He was from Pennsylvania, I think. And, uh, and uh, you know, a Polish immigrant family and miners, uh, mining family. And uh, another, there was a, a horror host at my local uh, television station growing up who was from uh, Indiana. And I thought it was weird because he would say robots, you know, and I would go, it's robots, man. Why don't you speak like normal people in California? It's robots. I place you under arrest. So earlier in the film, we saw that commander of, uh, of the Exians. Right. He, had, he was sitting under a red light with yeah. a... Like a, <laughs> With, like he, a reflector. And it, looked like, it looked like he had like a USB port. In his yeah, back. like bolts on his back. Yeah, I love you. That's where he gets plugged in. I think that's where the excites plug themselves into something. They could find out if the red dots are decreasing. 
And another just a great optical process shot too. It's just really kind of cool that she goes to negative and then turns to zero. It reminds me of the human vapor a little bit. Just a little bit. The right. effect yeah. there. Right. You stinking rats! What did you do? Our actions are controlled by electronic computers, not by human emotions. When that law is violated, the offender is eliminated. It's hard to talk through this scene. It's such a great scene. And like, yeah. so it's like you can. And now you, you can, can finally see their it. shoes. Fuji. Yes, those curly toed yes, shoes. Eaters in the United States. I know. <laughs> What's that? Some more trouble. And this is one thing they talk about in, in, in this part of the film where uh, the invasion gets, when the invasion gets underway and, you know, uh, Kiritaka Roddick runs in and, and tells Jun Tazaki, King Heater is in the United States. It's an international picture. You know, and it's like, I wanted, when I was a kid, I was like, I want to see him wrecking the United States, man. Where in the United States? Joe Heater destroying the Golden Gate Bridge or something. That would be awesome. Look out the window! We should look out the window. That's one of my favorite dub lines in this film. It's just... So the effect we're about to see with the Exian saucer uh, destroying the radar dish, the radar dish and, and other stuff, but specifically the radar dish. Now, was that a, a wax radar dish? On this one, no. No? This one was, uh, you know, they, they built it in plastic, uh, but they put really high lights up against yeah. it. So it would, uh, it would melt like this. Because if you notice a lot of the, you know, latticing on the uh, metal, what's supposed to be the metal, you know, it's so intricate, there's no way they could have done that in the wax in, in a short amount of time and, and make it look that good. Those wa- the, uh, the concepts behind the wax uh, towers in the original Godzilla. And now there's some debate coming out about that. Really? There are, there are Japanese film scholars that are arguing that it wasn't wax, that somebody came up with the idea for the wax, who came up with the idea for the wax, that it was an afterthought, that no, they did use a different material. So now in Japan, there are like some historians that are arguing about the, the melting of the uh, high tension lines in Godzilla. So we'll have to sort that out eventually. <laughs> that just goes for the to prove, like, anniversary we'll any, know. you know, even the experts in Japan get things wrong, mm-hmm. you know, and then we come to America, you know, it's like something gets can get easily lost in the translation or perpet- bad stories being perpetuated, and that just continues, you know, and goes on, and you have to, it takes a long time to correct those things. Now, are there, like, official books in Japan that, that go into the special effects and the, well, the behind-the-scenes uh, stuff? Those pop up as, uh, you know, parts of other books, like, that mm-hmm. cover the whole genre. Mm-hmm. There have been a couple of books in the past, like in the 80s. There was one big Toho book that we used to call the Golden Book, which is uh, the, it's called The History of Toho Special Effects Movies, and it came out in 83, and it goes all the way up to Sayonara Jupiter. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's officially, that was pu- published by Toho Publishing. And it, when I got my edition of the book back in 84, it came with a card saying... Uh, here are the corrections. Page 35, there's a mistake. Page 36, there's a mistake. And it came with a corrections card. So, you know, it's like a long history of film since the 30s. Toho was doing special effects films. So, uh, you know, it, it's, a lot of it's hard to keep track of, and they find new things out all the time, and old mistakes are, are, are old stories are discarded, and uh, the facts come out to light. Even though a lot of the people have passed, there are still people that you know are alive that will go. You know that story that's been in a lot of books about this happening at this time on this film. Mm-hmm. That's not really right. And at the same time, you have another person who worked on the same film going contradicting that person. 
So it's, you know, sorting out all these contradictions from the memories of various people who worked on these films 40, 50, 60 years ago. Yeah, I think that's, that's sort of the, the reason I even asked the question is because I, I think a lot of the books that I have seen, not that I've read, but that I've seen on, on the market, in right. Japanese books, obviously, uh, they are rarely written by people who were, you know, involved with the film. They're like, essentially, they're almost like, like uh, book versions of G-Fan or, or uh, magazine book versions. Right, but in, in the difference in Japan is a lot of, there are writers who are professional historians of, of you know, Japanese special effects films or, or anime or both, and they're uh, commentators that are tapped by the media and uh, get the, they get the writing gigs. Oh, yeah. You, know, uh, you were telling me about the guy from Castco, right? He, was the, he wrote that big, thick book of, about the special effects stuff, and he's, right. he's a commentator. They tap him quite, right. obvious, uh, quite often for right. commentaries right. and stuff. Yeah, and so they'll write liner notes for, you know, Laserdisc, or I'm not Laser, <laughs> Laserdisc. I'm really having a time slip this weekend. They'll write liner notes for DVDs or Blu-rays, but in the past they wrote the same liner notes for Laserdisc back It counts, in the 90s. it counts. I just, you know, need that Geritol really quick, man. And, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of conflicting stories about how things are done. So, you know, you could talk to Mr. Takarada and ask him questions. Then one of the other actors, you know, may have a slightly different memory of, of that thing. So, you know, there are a lot of very professional Japanese historians, that, uh, specifically on, the, on these films or Japanese monster movies and special effects films in general that, you know, are always aiming to find out more and... You know, a lot of things have come to light, and, and, and a, lot of ha a lot of stuff hasn't been written in, in some books or magazines that, you know, some of these guys are going online and putting on their blogs. Another awesome optical effects, seeing magnetic rays. That's good, it works. Now what is our problem? Well... So, you know, this is another example of what uh, we used to call Toho Science. I don't know if anybody uses that anymore. I still use it, for sure. Yeah. All right, so... You know, they're just coming up with a, a basic a jamming wave to, you know, to try to beat the, uh, the aliens' uh, control of the, over the monsters. And it's sort of like they're sitting around going, how do we defeat these guys? Well, they're affected by sound, but we want to cut off their rays. Hey, remember that experiment from a few years ago? Let me go to the file drawer. Yeah, he literally goes to the file drawer. This is it. Yeah. Ten hours to go. Good. All forces on Earth ready to attack. Good. So the the Everything aliens here, the, they've got the the Earth yes, sir. rotating Everything. on their control panel here. On sure on Planet X, in the background, it looked like they had a a version of Planet X behind them with lights, up. like rope lights yeah. all around it, which right. I'm assuming well, we like sort of signifies the the tunnels right. underneath the, the, the yeah, surface. They're, they're different, yeah. Where all their little uh, underground uh, cities went. Mm-hmm. Earlier in the film, when they uh, are in the saucer with uh, when they're taking Takarada and company to Planet X, mm -hmm. the control panel that doesn't have the Earth on it has some, it has a glass dome with some uh, uh, synch uh, synchronized lights that are that oh, yeah, are going yeah, yeah, a circle. Yeah. You know, so maybe so that Earth is holographic. Right. <laughs> According to you know quantum scientists, we're all living in a hologram. Because man Farewell, Glenn. A material <laughs> machine can be destroyed. We machines of Planet X can be destroyed by... That looks like a woman's hand on the left. Sound. So back when they a made movies sound. like this, uh, or imported Japanese films, 
So they would film an insert for their foreign market. So in the original Japanese version, there the letter is written in Japanese. So for the foreign market, you know, they had the insert shot of the letter in English. And there's the Lady Guard alarm. We haven't talked about that yet, or, or Akira Kubo. Uh, this was his first kaiju film. Well, you know, he did Matango. And oh, yeah. And well, yeah, yeah, that's true. But it's his first uh, Godzilla film. Oh, right, he was? That's right, he was in Gorath. Yeah, he's the oh, star yeah. of Gorath. Yeah, he was in the... Uh, and his co-star was Kumi Mizuno. He was in the robot suit in yeah. Gorath, too. Yeah. But Kubo, Kubo is a great actor who had a lot of appeal. And, uh, you know, he was in a couple of Kurosawa films, but uh, he was one of the guys in his generation that could actually be kind of a little bit of a chameleon like a couple of the other Toho actors where you would see these guys in a couple different films when you first got into them and then not recognize them until you connected the name. You know, and you go like, wait a minute, so this guy is the same guy who was the pilot of the SY3 in, Mon- in Destroy All Monsters? Yeah. You know, he was such a nerd in Monster Zero, I didn't put the two together. And, you know, when, of course, you know, you're, you know, eight or ten years old, you yeah. know, and then you finally have the epiphany of, on, it's the same dude. <laughs> in the Japanese version of this film, Kubo, Kubo does not speak in a nerdy voice. He actually speaks in a very normal voice, that dub is what gave him his yeah. nerd cred. Yeah, in, uh, I think, a couple of magazines at the time, uh, you know, the uh, American magazines that reviewed the film, they would criticize the dubbing. They go, it sounds like Snidely Whiplash or old cartoon <laughs> characters. Well, so, some of these voice actors did things that we know, like, for instance, the guy who uh, voices Glenn also did Robbie the Robot. Right. Or no, sorry, voices uh, Fuji. Glenn is Nick Adams. He speaks English. This is a great explosion. For some reason, the explosions of this film have no, uh, you know, little uh, uh, gasoline fireball in the middle. It's, this is, is this reddish-brown powder that shoots out of, like, and everything, even when the saucers blow up later in the film. I think they were just kind of looking for different pyrotechnics compared to the previous films or the films that would follow where you get more of that, you know, big uh, fireball explosion. Oh, yeah. And it's weird. The, the explosions are all uniform in this film. They just have that, that red, that brownish red copper, whatever it is, dust that comes out of the center of it. I always wanted to ask uh, the pyrotechnics uh, artist on these films, and I got an opportunity to meet him. Uh, at the Hollywood premiere of Final Wars oh, in 2004, the Egyptian. Is he, that was at, he was at, at the after party. Kume is his last name. And he's since passed away. So, you know, we were all at the party, but everybody's, uh, you know, he didn't want to be pressed. No, you don't want to press people for an interview when you've been invited to. You just go, oh, I love your work, you know. And he gave me his business card. And I never followed up contacting him, and I feel real bad about that because I wanted to ask him because I really love a lot of the explosives in the movies. Yeah, yeah. You know, and there's a really great shot that some friends of mine and I, when we watch Monster Zero, when the when their house, the the headquarters of the aliens on Earth on uh, Ikura Island, when that explodes. You know, there was this one shingle from the roof of the building that just goes over the water and almost right at the camera. And so when we used to watch it as kids, we'd go, Shrapnel! <laughs> Computer shows a discrepancy. Why? This is where the red dots are increasing. What is the trouble? Or decreasing. I can never remember which one. And what does that mean? All right. Well, I don't know because I don't, uh, I don't speak computer. <laughs> but, uh... 
And this, I always wondered about this. So she is setting something up here. They've got their readings coming in. There's nothing wrong yet. And there's this one shot coming up where they're just, you know, he's doing the same. It's the same kind of scene where they're just going, red dots are increasing, blah, 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 blah. It's a bunch of techno babble. And then Tsuchiya goes to press a button. All of a sudden he goes, like, squirrel? What is he reacting to? I never got that. That's something I'd like to find out. And now finally the monsters are loose. And it's a great composite shot. You don't have all the quote-unquote bad mats. It's pretty seamless for the time. Is that a backdrop of Fuji? Yeah, that- that's a backdrop painting. And that previous shot where the people running... Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been recycled. That this shot is also in uh, War of the Gargantuas. They just put Gyra running through. Oh. This is uh, library footage of the military that was shot originally uh, during the Mysterians, and it's not stock footage because stock footage is cutting the scene out of one movie and putting it into another. They just shot all this footage of the military on maneuvers when they made the Mysterians. So they just went back to the original negative and said, "Let's use some of that Mysterians footage, but we're going to make it." look dark because it's supposed to be a night shot or we're going to make it look daytime. So we'll put a filter on that or not put a filter on it. And that sh- particular shot of the military dismounting the, off the Jeeps is in about at least four or five Toho films. Including Godzilla vs. The Thing, I believe. And now, please welcome to the stage the A-Cycle Light Ray. It's like, seriously, one of my favorite mechas and it yes. kind of bums me out that everybody seems to love the Mazer cannon when yeah. very obviously the Mazer cannon is the A-cycle light ray with some stuff taken off and replaced. Right. And I always wanted a, a really good detailed toy of you know the A-cycle light ray and I bought the remote controlled Mazer cannon. Yeah, from Aoshima. Yeah. yeah. And I was thinking about, you know, I'll just buy a couple more and then I'll just kit bash it and make it an A side of the light ray cannon. And I go, yeah, that'll happen in 20 years after I'm dead. <laughs> it's Guess never going to happen. It's going to sit on the shelf with the 45 model kits I'll never build. I, I just did that exact same thing. <laughs> bought two Some, of those. Yeah. Just, just somebody make it and sell it to me, please. Yeah. I'll just take my money. I'll let you know how that goes when All I right. do my custom version. Cool. Well, Bill Gudmundson did a, 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 a garage kit for Resin Chef, mm-hmm. you know, but you can only buy that in Japan. You can't yeah. get it here. Actually, Bill and I were talking. This has nothing to do with the commentary. I don't know why I'm bringing it up, but what the hell. Uh, Bill and I were talking recently about that 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 truck that pulls the, yeah, pulls the A-cycle, and it's not based on any existing... Yeah, it's made up. Yeah, yeah. they completely kit-bashed it, right. basically, yeah. So I'm going to have to buy, like, three kits in order to make that. Right. <laughs> so all the vehicles, you know, you see in these scenes going down the road, they're all uh, rod-driven, which means there's a rod underneath the set, and it's on a track. So that's a trick that Jerry Anderson did for all the Super Marionation uh, shows. Uh, actually, it wasn't Jerry Anderson, but it was Derek Mettings, the special effects uh, uh, director. There's that shot, like, what is he reacting to? Did he just fart or something? I have no idea. <laughs> Smell the fart acting. Just goes, huh? That's right. I just put a Friends reference in this commentary. Yes. And Derek Bettings, the guy we're referring to, is Academy Award-winning special effects director of the Bond films and mm-hmm. Superman, the motion picture, a very famous miniature guy. So, you know, there was a lot of shared love between 
you know, the, the guys that were doing the Jerry Anderson productions and the guys at Toho, they just really admired each other's work a lot. Oh, cool. And all these shots of Godzilla stepping on these buildings, that's a giant foot prop that was just dropped on, uh, from a crane. And the foot was about five, up to the ankle, was about five feet tall. And so the miniature houses could be built at a much larger scale. And there's a beautiful still that I wanted to put in my book, but it didn't happen, uh, of Tsuburaya standing next to one of the buildings that's about to be smashed, smoking a cigarette, taking a break, and the foot is just hovering like the sword of Damocles like right over <laughs> his head. It's a really nice shot. I love the, the crew photo where you could see the foot in the background. Right, yeah, yeah. That's a good one. And that's, that last shot was from Rodan of the, uh, the military vehicles. And there's more Obviously, stock. Obviously, that stock, was from Rodan. Yeah, stock from Rodan. He blew it up and cropped it to be widescreen. And we're back to the original footage here. And it's not because these films, uh, you know, were, they were running out of a budget or anything and we have to use stock footage to make up for it. It was like Subaraya going like, oh, man, you know. We filmed a lot of stuff, but, you know, let's pat it out a little more. So, you know, let's just, you know, use some stock in here. Well, I mean, it's almost very similar to what you're saying about the military footage. Right. You know, they created, they've essentially created a special effects library. Right. And they have the ability to go back to the negative and pull stuff and swap right. out the, the gravity beams if they, you know, choose to do so. Right. But, you know, Subaraya did a little fudging, like a lot of, you know, any good filmmaker will fudge. You know, something just to get the most out of the dollar and at the same time divert those dollars into other parts of the production. Right. And all of these miniature buildings, you know, were all hand built out of wood uh, by a team of women who meticulously glued them together, painted them, and then glued all the shingles on individually. Even if a building was in a sh one shot for half a second, Every single tile on every building was individually glued on by hand. They just, we just saw a shot from Rodan of people running through a building, but we're seeing it from the outside. And I didn't realize until just recently the way that they did that is they projected... No, it wasn't even projected. It wasn't projected? No, it wasn't projected. So they didn't use, like, there's two processes for projecting. There was, like, the shoot them process, and then the, the other one, I can't remember, that was, uh, that was used, uh, you know, like, like Kong, you know, the original King Kong, like, yeah. 33. What they did is they just made uh, cutouts and painted people, and they just pulled it. Really? From oh, inside cool, the miniature, cool. so it was a mechanical effect. I, yeah, I saw, I saw something like that in Rodan, and I was, yeah. I was like, ooh, what is this? Of course, I was watching like a Japanese featurette, and I had no idea what they're saying because I don't speak Japanese. Right. But the other thing is, you can really kind of tell when you're watching these things on television or on home video. No matter how big your monitor is, you know, it it's not as big as a 150 foot movie picture screen. True. You know, a theater screen. So you, some of those details either you know make themselves more uh, prevalent, you know, to catch your eye how they did it where it sort of belies the, you know, the, the trick, or, I mean, uh, you know, makes that, brings the trick to light. Because watching it on TV, it gets all glossed over, so it looks, it could look, it could fool you more than seeing it on a big screen. But sometimes, at the same, you know, actually in the same token, seeing these films on a big screen make them more, actually more impressive. Mm -hmm. You know, you might see a few more blemishes 
like a more wires or you know a backdrop that's a little sagging in a corner but the impression of these films on a big screen is, you know just can't be replaced by watching them on a, on a, any smaller screen than a 150 foot movie yeah. screen yeah I, I actually remember in vivid detail when we showed this at the 50 years of godzilla film festival in how, that was in portland right yeah in portland yeah how how much i was like i don't think i've ever seen this film look so good and uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, we got it's a pretty Attention big screen everyone. in in Portland. Yeah, no, oh, they, hey, everybody who listens to the podcast knows this part. Yeah, there's Saburo Iketani, who was the Toho announcer. He played an announcer so in a lot of films, not just Godzilla films and not Honda's films, but in actual life. He was originally in the first Godzilla too. He's one of the announcers. He's the guy on the ship, you know, that announces, you know, victory. Godzilla has been defeated by the oxygen destroyer. Oh, okay. But um, he was an actual radio announcer. And they just told, just went, hey, man, want to be in movies and be a radio announcer in movies? And he was like, okay. He's going to get typecast for the rest of his life. This is an emergency. The unpleasant noise you hear on your radio receiver is not a mistake. That Lady Guard alarm is absolutely unpleasant. The noise that it makes. Yeah. We were earlier when they first started setting it off, and we were just beginning the commentary. Yeah, I was like, "Wow, this is too loud." (laughs) The first G Fest that I went to earlier today, I mentioned that my son won the costume contest that year in 1999. But that same year, there was somebody there. I don't know who he was, but he had a fantastic Exian costume. Costume. It was so good and. But right before the costume, he was like, does it look accurate? Does it look good? And at, at the time, I absolutely did not have yeah. the knowledge to say, yes, it looks accurate. But I remember it being really good. Yeah. We need, we need more Exians running around. And there's another, some other library footage from during the production of Mysterians. That shot wasn't in the Mysterians, but that's part of their library reel. They got a lot of juice out of that. It even turns up in Megalon, that stuff. That's not surprising, though. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, even though Megalon gets bashed for having a lot of stock footage, and one reviewer way back when said God called the movie, I think the, the title of his review was Godzilla vs. the stock footage. Yeah. Gigan has the most stock footage. Gigan gets a pass, but Gigan, if you clock it in, has the most stock footage. Hmm. And it's even more blatant because the monsters look totally differently from shot to shot because they're going back, you know, six, eight years of previous past films. Yeah. You know, and then adding filters to try to match day shots and make them into night shots. Totally, totally. It's it's a lot more jarring, I think. But when you saw these films when they were being released, you never, like, identified that, say, wait a second, that's the same shot from... I was a nerd, I noticed. Did you really? Yeah. Did it actually detract from the enjoyment of the film? No. It was fascinating. To me, it was fascinating. I I recognize that. It maybe seemed like I knew something. (laughs) Was Was that your first step down this path of being the Godzilla historian? Yeah, to be, uh, yeah... Eventually, one day, it will be Pope Pompous the First. <laughs> I am the Kaiju King. I know everything. But it was just kind of like that cool thing, because you'd watch these movies over and over every time they played on TV, and you'd go like, 
now I can spot that because yeah. you know I've seen so many more of the films. Now I'm like noticing the same actors mm-hmm. and you know and, and noticing these similarities. And another great shot. This is just really impressive. It's fantastic. And it looks fantastic. If you ever have an opportunity to see Monster Zero in a theater on a 35 presentation, go and see it. It's awesome. It looks great. Send the second squad into action. Yeah, I invited a bunch of my coworkers at the second time squad. to come to the Monster to Zero attack. screening when we had right. it in Portland. And there were some people that were like, Kyle knows this is cheesy, right? And I was like, I know it's cheesy, but I love it. And actually, it's, like, I know you think it's cheesy, but I don't actually think it's cheesy. Well, you know, in, in my personal lexicon, there's nothing that's cheesy and there's no guilty pleasures. Because if you like it, you should just like it and embrace it. Don't be ashamed that you like it, man. Yeah. You know? And I don't care if it, it's... What is... What is you know, we're talking about movies with giant monsters. It's already a ridiculous premise in the first place, man. Just enjoy it. And each film has a different texture. Each film has a different tone. You know, if it's cool, it's cool. And if normies Doctor, don't get it, it worked. Tough. Yeah. You know, they I don't, can, yeah. You know, they could have, you know, if you want science, you want hard science, read Scientific American. I don't even think they would have cared if it had hard science in it. Like, I just think that they, they well, did the, the typical thing that, you know, this, and that's like, I say this a lot too on the show. Like, I'm, I'm so tired of like people just kind of putting down these films on one hand. But like, on the other hand, like, I don't really care that people. Right. I, the only thing that really bugs me every time is when they say cardboard buildings. That's yeah. the thing that kills yeah. me. But yeah, one of the points I don't, there, I don't need everybody to like this film. Yeah, there's, there's no cardboard movie. There's no cardboard buildings anywhere. You know? Especially kind of, it really takes away from the hard work that everybody did. Uh, oh, absolutely. Working in the miniature unit. And it's really funny in, in looking back at these films now, after, after being such a you know narrow-minded fan. Yeah. Just, I only want to watch these movies. You know, I don't want to watch any other movies. I just want to watch, you know, sci-fi, fantasy, monster movies, and I'll watch Japanese monster movies all day over, you know, anything else. Uh, but then you start seeing other films of the time and their miniature work, and you're going like, I don't know what the problem is. And they all seem about the same in varying degrees. Yeah. There's not much, like, the Derek Metting stuff, you know, like in the Thunderbirds, like mm-hmm. the two feature films, Thunderbirds Are Go and Thunderbirds 6. It's like they're very similar yeah. to the Superaya stuff when at the height of his powers. So, you know, I think it. I don't want to get in a whole sociological thing about why people bash on these movies so much. Yeah, maybe because they're Japanese. Maybe, and, but you know, I think they just got a reputation that has perpetuated itself in the collective hive mind of people, or you know, it's. It's, you know, baggy rubber suits and cardboard buildings. And it's just it's hard to break that away. Yeah. You know, break away from that. And there's one gasoline explosion. And yeah. shrapnel! <laughs> we did it! Yeah. And, you know, this is one film when it comes to its conclusion. You know, uh, I sit there every time when the movie, you know, has the crescendo of Ifakube's music, you know, starts swelling up. And they're doing, yeah, you're going to have to go back to Planet X, buddy. You know, <laughs> whatever's fair, pal. <laughs> and I say to myself, every time I watch this particular film, I go, take me with you. I don't want, I, I don't want the movie to end. I want the movie to keep going. I want to see what Glenn and Fuji are going to do again, you know. The continuing adventures of Glenn and Fuji. 
That would be that would be a really great uh, web comic or web series. And you know, there was a, a thing I was going to mention earlier about uh, uh, Robert Dunham and uh, Bill Gore and the Space Monster, where he plays the you know the Diamond G Man, yeah, right? Mark Nelson, yeah. right? And then Toa was talking about developing a TV show for foreign export with Robert Dunham being Mark Jackson, you know, and he would be in different trouble. And they were going to try to sell it because they could. On a film on the lo- exotic locations in Japan, but with yeah. you know a Caucasian actor, so they could sell it to America and foreign territories. And then, uh, and then I then uh, he was told the bad news because he was all excited. I might get this TV show. I might get this TV show. And then Toho told, "Well, we're interested in quoting Nick Adams instead <laughs> because the Rebel, his TV show, was just playing in Japan at the time." And they just went. Why do we have this guy who's a no-name when we can get Nick Adams and that's a bigger marquee value? And they tried to court Nick Adams and Vic Morrow and David Jansen. Really? And uh, David Jansen was like, no, I'm doing The Fugitive. Bye. And, uh, you know, Vic Morrow was like, I'm doing Combat. He's doing a popular TV show. And Nick Adams, I don't know what they... I think that deal eventually developed into Frankenstein Conquers the World and Monster Zero. Oh, cool. That's a, and be that story was told to me wins. by uh, Robert Dunham. So yeah, back about 1990. I would have totally watched a Nick Adams oh, TV hell yeah, show. Man. Hell yeah, that'd be awesome. You know, set in Japan. And those are miniature puppets, and those are a different set of miniature puppets. An interesting thing that Godzilla that was in that last tumble is the uh, is one of the the uh, uh, miniature dolls that they didn't use, but for King Kong versus Godzilla, you'll see some shots of Subaraya with this goofy yeah, looking yeah. Godzilla. That's that was that one. So right. they keep these things lying around. Go, we're not going to use it. Hey, we could use it for this scene in this other movie, you know, for a long shot or Hi, you know, have them tumbling into the What's ocean. Happening? Look in the water. Right on, man. Well, do you have any final thoughts you want to mention about this movie? I mean, yeah. clearly well, this movie is near and dear to both of our hearts. Yeah. Like I said, you know, when the movie ends, I want to say, take me with you. I don't want the movie to end. I want to see what happens to everybody. So the only other thing I can add to that is if you don't like this movie, you're dead to me. <laughs> you have no soul, and I hate you. Because this is a great movie. I mean, you don't, you don't have to think it's the greatest movie of all time, but if you don't have fun and enjoy the film, then, you know, why even bother watching these movies? It's just so much fun, and it's Toho at its pinnacle, and, you know, hey, man, they're not going to make movies like that anymore, pal. No, they are not. They are not. <laughs> yeah. I actually, this is, I just want to say one last thing about Monster Zero. You know, I feel like it took me a really long time to come around to this film, but uh, thanks to a lot of research that I've read from some of my friends and some of my uh, favorite kaiju authors, I, I really, really think that this is like just the strongest story that's that that Toho has produced, and it's it absolutely is just gonna stay with me for the rest of my life. And with that, thanks for sitting with us. Thank you very much, and thanks for being on here with me, man. Thanks, man. Thank you for fun. inviting me, Kyle. I think I'm gonna go up to my room later tonight and watch Monster Zero again, so I can listen to the soundtrack. Let's watch Monster Zero every night. Yeah. What, Mom? Monster Zero again? <laughs>